Amen. Good morning once again, everyone, and a special welcome to those of you that are with us online this morning, Facebook Live, YouTube, hillcrestchurch.com, wherever you may be this morning, we welcome you and are hoping that you have and are having a blessed Christmas as we look forward to a very happy new year together. And good morning to uh, our wonderful friends and family over at Hillcrest Spanish Trail. Love you guys. Good to be with you all last week. We had a great time over there last Sunday. And thank you to Eric Mitchell, who fills in so capably and admirably. Don't y'all love Eric Mitchell? And we're so thankful for him. And uh, for this wonderful crew that's been with us this morning, our worship crew over at Spanish Trail, we're thankful for our wonderful leadership. And once again, it's great to have everybody in the house this morning. Uh, one clarification for those of you here at the Nine Mile campus this morning, Brad told me that I invited everybody to Christmas Eve service on Wednesday night. You don't want to come on Wednesday night. Ain't nobody going to be here on Wednesday night. Christmas Eve is obviously Tuesday night, and hopefully uh, you're well uh, managing your calendar, and you know that that's when you need to be here. Four o'clock, six o'clock on Wednesday night here, four o'clock over uh, Tuesday night. I did it again. <laughs> it's a Freudian slip, man. It's in there. I may show up on Wednesday night. I preached to myself on Wednesday night. Uh, but 4 o'clock Tuesday night over at Spanish Trail Campus. Thank you all very much. I'm now, I went to the party on Tuesday night, and I was reminded with our 55-plus group at their Christmas banquet. I used to go uh, because that's what pastors do. You went and you were with your seniors on their times of celebration. And this past Tuesday, I realized that's like where I belong now. I'm 55-plus, and sometimes it shows. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is where we are this morning. Easy to find. Find the first book of the Bible and turn a page and you'll be in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And on this Sunday before Christmas, in just a moment, you're going to find out why we're there. One of the sad <clears throat> realities about Christmas uh, is that over the course of the last many, many years, uh, it's really turned into something that it's not. Isn't that right? Uh, most people really have kind of a semblance of a love-hate relationship with Christmas. We love it, particularly from a Christian perspective, because of what it means to us spiritually and supernaturally in terms of our relationship with our Lord. But boy, it can be a real, a real challenging time of the year because most of us, if we were to ask, how do you spell Christmas, we would spell it R-U-S-H, right? Because it's the busiest time of the year. It's financially, for most people, the most stressful time of the whole year. We buy things we don't need to keep up with people we don't like and go into debt while doing it, and all in the name of the season. We buy and we spend. We end up tired and emotionally exhausted. Sometimes you can wonder whether or not it's all worth it. Sometimes you just want to check out and go get a cabin on a lake spend about two weeks there in solitude and quietness. I think it's important that we understand the significance of what it is that we're actually celebrating at Christmas, why Christmas really does matter. Now, we obviously have no idea whether or not Jesus was actually born on December the 25th, but I, I am glad that we have a date on the calendar that marks it because we do know that Jesus was actually born into the world we know that he was born, and because we've been recognizing this most important of all births now for some 2,000 years, 
I really do believe it's important that we not only understand why the birth of Jesus Christ is significant, but why it was critical. Why not only that it did happen, but why it had to happen for us personally. And to understand the reasons why Christmas is critical, we need to go back, I think, to the very beginning. That's why we're in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. This is a passage that I believe can be adequately and accurately described as the hinge chapter of the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 3 is the chapter in the Bible on which the whole Bible turns. And the reason that's true is because if the events of Genesis chapter 3 do not happen, we don't need the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 22. Genesis 4 to Revelation 22 is in the Bible as Holy Scripture because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And it's here in this very familiar account that we discover not only why Christmas is necessary, but why Christmas is critical. Look with me this morning. We're not going to read every bit of it. It's a lengthy passage, but we'll read as much as we can, starting in verse number 6. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Verse 13, so the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You'll eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. 
Heavenly Father, would you anoint this reading of your word today and by your Holy Spirit implant it deep within our minds, souls, bodies, and spirits that we might not only hear, but it might be transformative to our life that we might live in such a way to worship the Lord and bring honor and glory to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Now, with the anticipation of the Christmas celebration right in front of us this week, Let's talk about four reasons why Christmas is critical from this very important text right at the beginning of God's Word. First of all, we notice that Christmas is critical because we're guilty. Christmas is critical because of human guilt, because that's the first aftershock of Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God. The first aftershock of the man and the woman's first sin was guilt, and with guilt, came inevitable shame. You see that in the fact that the first thing they did after they had sinned was realize that they had been exposed and attempt to cover themselves up. They attempt to make coverings for themselves. Verse 7, the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, that's significant uh, significant before this happened. Uh, They were naked, the Bible says, and they had no shame. I mean, they lived in a state of innocence. In fact, many theologians believe that first couple didn't even have a conscience because they didn't need a conscience. You know, your conscience is there to prick you when you wander outside of the will of God. But they never wandered outside of the will of God as long as they lived in disobedience in that perfect, pristine place. In the absence of evil, they were living and walking in harmony with God. But the moment that they sinned, man, boom, the lights went out. Maybe in one sense, the lights came on because there were some things that they never had noticed that they began to notice. And as we'll see in a moment, with that first sin, their spirits died instantly. There was instantaneous spiritual death in terms of their relationship with God. And because of that, as we'll see here in just a moment, their physical side all of a sudden takes on a brand new prominence. Now they were God-focused before then. They were God-focused. They were each other-focused. Their own consciousness of self dwindled in comparison to their consciousness about God and their consciousness in one another, living together as husband and wife in one flesh. But now all of a sudden they've got eye disease. Now, all of a sudden, they're looking within rather than looking outside of themselves. Their physical side takes on a prominence, and it takes on an attention that up to this point, it had never had before. Before, they were naked and had no shame because they had nothing to be ashamed of. They were living in absolute harmony with the will of God, walking with God in that evening breeze, what the King James Bible calls the cool of the day. But now, there's enormous shame. They knew that they were, if I could say it Tennessee style, naked, right? They were ashamed. They were guilty, and they knew they were guilty. And the first thing they do is what we do when we commit sin. Usually, the default response is to try to cover it up. Can I give you a a little bit of counsel this morning from American political history? The cover-up is always worse than the crime, And the first thing they do is try to cover it up. 
Before, they were acceptable to God just the way they were, but now things were different. They couldn't stand it. And so knowing no more about sowing than I do, they tried to make themselves fit for the presence of God by sewing together a garb that they could cover themselves with out of fig leaves. Now, we do the same thing today, only the dressing is different, right? We've got other frills and dressings that we use in order to cover over our sin. And you know the number one dressing that most people use to assuage their guilt, try to get God to accept them? The number one frill and the number one dressing is religious, religion. Some form of fashion of religion. See, religion is man's attempt to climb a ladder to get to God. When God didn't build us to try to climb a ladder to get to him, God always comes to us in terms of relationship. But we tend to try to, well, we tend to, try to cover over our guilt by religion or some other form of good works. You just try to do good things because you've become convinced by, that by doing good things, you can get God to love you and like you and accept you and kind of overlook your improprieties and all of your faults. See, what God wants you and I to do is to admit that we've sinned. And admit that we're guilty and admit that we've done wrong. But man, it's hard for people to admit that they've done wrong. It's hard for people to admit their guilt. And you can't help anybody. The thing that I've found over nearly 30 years of counseling people is you can't help anybody that doesn't want to be helped. The first step in healing of any kind is to admit that you've got a problem. And that's what Adam and Eve had trouble doing. They just tried to cover it up, and we try to do the same thing. We go through exercises, religious rituals to make us feel better about ourselves. We join churches. We say prayers. We chant prayers. We take communion. We get baptized. We recite liturgy. We do lots of charitable works, work with the homeless. All of those things can be good things, in their proper dimension, in their proper sphere. But for most people, they're just a different form of embellishment. They're nothing more than a religious form of fig leaves. That's all they are. And here's the thing. <laughs> Those fig leaves couldn't hide their guilt from the all-seeing, holy eyes of our Lord God. And neither can your good deeds. God saw right through them. God will see right through you Jesus said what we need is real and lasting change. And real and lasting change always comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. Everybody tracking with me? It has to happen from within. You don't need external dressing. What you need is a new birth. You don't need reformation. What you need is internal transformation. You need to be born again. And that's why religion never saves anybody. In our guilt and in our shame, which happens because of sin, what we need is for God to show up and do something for us that we're incapable of doing for ourselves. We need God to come and save us. That's what we need. And that, brothers and sisters, is why Christmas is critical. It's critical because of our guilt. But this passage teaches us that Christmas is also critical because of our fear. We got <clears throat> lots of fearful people. There's some people that are very afraid. You're afraid because of what you're facing. You're, you're afraid because of an uncertain tomorrow. There's a reason that Jesus taught so much about worry and anxiety in the Bible. It's because we're a bunch of stressed out people who are aspirin eaters, who take Tylenol like they're Pez candy, 
other forms of drugs kind of calm us down because we live constantly in a state of stress and in a state of fear. And that's a consequence of sin. It's in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. Isn't that interesting? Because those were the very trees that they used to walk among when they were walking with the Lord. I mean, they could hear that breeze, that evening breeze blowing through the leaves of those giant trees. And it was there that they fellowshiped with God and that they communed with God and they worshiped and adored God. They enjoyed God and they lived from those trees. Those trees provided them shade and comfort. They provided them food. But now those trees are tools in this incredible conspiracy to try to remove themselves from the presence of God. They were using those very trees now to try to hide from God. Shouldn't surprise us that guilt and fear are two sides of the same coin. You very rarely have one without the other. They're usually twins. They go together, which explains, I think, why the first couple wanted nothing to do with God in the garden that day. Before they fell, the voice of God had been a very welcome sound. You know, it's like when you go out in the evening and your dog's out running around the yard and you come home from work and you call the dog by name and the dog perks up and the tail goes up and he darts toward you and he jumps on you. He's excited when he hears his master's voice. And that was Adam and Eve. Whenever they heard the sound of the coming of the Lord, it was a welcome sound. It was an exciting sound. They longed to be in the presence of the Lord. The time they spent with God was the best part of the whole day. But things are radically different now, aren't they, in this hinge chapter of the Bible? And what's the difference? Fear is the difference. Fear. I mean, Adam just out and out admits it here in verse 10. I heard your voice and I was what? Afraid. And what's the typical response to fear? Avoidance. Cowering. You avoid. You run. I remember when I was in the fifth grade, which was a long time ago, some things get embedded in your memory. And I played basketball when I was in the fifth grade. I'm reminded of that every time I go over and see our upward teams either playing or practicing just by the scores over there, having a good time. We didn't have upward, but we did have basketball leagues, and I played with a good buddy of mine. We had practice at our elementary school that we were in at the time one day, and and uh, our practice was over, and my mother was supposed to come pick both of us up, and she was running a little bit behind for whatever reason, and, and everybody left. I mean, we were literally left alone in that whole school. That's a dangerous thing. We were left alone in that whole school. Even the coach left, and there we were. And so we were just kind of biding our time, and we had a basketball with us, and we were out in the hallway, these hallways that seemed so narrow when we were in school and you're fighting the crowds and fighting traffic. And there was only two people in there, two young people. That thing looked a mile wide and a mile and a half long. And we just started bouncing the basketball to one another, right up close to one another. And we started moving back and we'd bounce the ball and bounce the ball till we had this enormous distance. And for whatever reason, I got this bright idea to throw the ball, to see if I could throw the ball down the entire length of the hallway. 
And when I did, I failed to recognize that hanging from the ceiling was this big sign that said exit. And I threw the ball right into that exit sign. And it shattered it into a billion pieces. And the whole world stood still for a while. And he looked at me and I looked at him wondering what we should do. And then all the way at the end of that hallway, my buddy Joe turned on his heels and he ran as fast as he could right out the door. Leaving me with these shards of plastic and glass, wondering what the right thing to do was. So in my maturity, even as a young man of 12 going on 42, I did what I should do as a young Christian man. I ran right along with him. (laughs) I darted out of there as fast as I can, being sure to carry my basketball with me. And we ran as far away from the building where we could get and still see the parking lot because we didn't want to get found out. I think my mother knew something was up from the very beginning, the way we were acting when we got in the car. But I've never forgotten about that. I I suppose I should probably write somebody a check. If I wrote checks anymore, I should. That's what fear does when you do wrong, when something's not right. Guilt always leads to fear, and fear always leads to avoidance, and that's what happened to Adam and Eve. We read this story today, and we think, man, why did they do that? We all know that's not the right approach. We all know the Lord of the New Testament. We know the God of the Bible. And we know that all they had to do was just run. And we think that. Why did they just run to God and admit what they had done? Admit their sin. In the presence of God. Well, they didn't have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've got it, but they didn't. And that's a good question. And here's the thing. It's still a good question today because we do the same thing. We tend to run from the very God that we need to be fleeing to in our times of spiritual need. But Romans 3.11 says there is no one that seeks after God. That's what sin will do to you. It just blinds you to your real need. It blinds you to the right response to God. And it always results in an unhealthy fear of God. That's a problem of sin. I mean, it's one thing to fear God in a reverential kind of way, honor God, respect God, acknowledge God for who he is. That's a healthy fear of God. But I'm not talking about that kind of fear. I'm talking about an unhealthy fear of God. That's what sin does. It causes you to cower and to flee from the presence of the Lord. And sin causes our first response to God often to be avoidance. We don't want to find God is the problem. So we run from God. The evangelist Billy Sunday used to say the reason that most people can't find God is the same reason that criminals can't find a policeman. They're not looking for him. They're trying to get away. Well, here's the thing. You can either run to God and find refuge, or you can run from God and find trouble. And can I just say this morning, running from God always leads you to deeper trouble. All you're going to do by running away from God is continue to dig the pit and dig the pit and dig the pit and make things worse. Sin leads to guilt. Guilt leads to an unhealthy fear of God, which leads to an avoidance of God. We want to hide from the grace of God. And can I just say, this is why Christmas is critical. 
Because only the perfect love of Christ can conquer the fear that keeps us on the run from a God who loves us with an everlasting love and who desires more than anything in this life to save us from our sin. Christmas is critical because of our guilt. Christmas is critical because of our fear. Third, Christmas is critical because of our pain. Anybody struggling in the house this morning? Struggling with physical pain, emotional or mental pain, spiritual pain. This is one reason why Christmas is so vitally important. The Bible teaches that one of the great things about heaven that I'm really looking forward to is it's going to be a place where there's no more pain. Amen. No pain, no fear, no guilt, no avoidance, just perfect harmony with God. I think that's the way life was in the garden before sin. There was no pain, no disease, no financial stress, no toil, no relational disharmony, no grief. I mean, the sad reality is that ever since that tragic decision in the garden, men and women, all of us, have had to live lives that consistently alternate between seasons of joy and seasons of pain. And this side of heaven, the longer I live, the more that I'm convinced that for most people, the scales will be tended to tilt toward pain more than joy. For most people, they'll have to grapple more with pain than they celebrate with joy this side of heaven. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Anybody here pray that prayer this morning? Amen. There's this longing to be rid of this body of pain. And we have the events of Genesis chapter 3 to thank for all of that. When God pronounced judgment on the first couple, the sentence involved pain, didn't it? For both of them. For the woman, it was pain in childbirth. I've been told a long time ago by preachers with greater experience than mine to not preach beyond your level of experience. So I ain't saying much much about pain in childbirth this morning. But that's an inevitable consequence of sin. It's one of the the great and tragic ironies of life that the human event that brings the greatest joy in life comes only through the greatest pain in life. And you don't see that anywhere else outside of humanity to any great degree at all. Now, I'm not a zoologist, but I do watch the Discovery Channel. Can I have an amen? (laughs) I do watch Animal Planet. And you don't see that kind of agony when other mammals give birth. You don't see a mama horse get up and try to find the sire and kick the daylights out of him. They hardly make a noise. Big old whale in the water, doesn't make a sound. No sign of struggle. I mean, this is part and parcel of the human curse that comes upon humanity because of sin. For the man, it's the toil of labor. It's just a life becomes a burdensome grind. That's true for men and women. But I mean, it was Adam's responsibility to work and to put food on the table, and it wasn't going to come easy. Wasn't a problem before. 
But it would from this point forward because God not only cursed the first couple, he cursed the very ground itself. And the world is still under a curse. It's not just humanity that came under the curse of the first sense. Why we have volcanoes and those pesky tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and everything else that you can think of that's not right with the physical order. That's all as a result of the curse. None of that stuff existed prior to the man or the woman's first sin. It's exactly where it came from. And now man's going to have to deal with all of that. He's going to have to work for food. He's got to toil and sweat to get a harvest. And life and the ground and the weather and the pest, they weren't always going to be cooperative with him. This is why Christmas is critical. It's critical because of the consequences caused by this first sin. They extended not just to the first couple, but they affected the entire created order, and we wrestle with it 24-7 every day of our life. And the end result of that for all of us is pain and grief and sorrow. And that leads to the worst of the worst. The most important thing we learn out of this passage is that Christmas is critical because of death. And here we're talking about both physical and spiritual death. This is the worst news of all. This is the most dreadful consequence of sin. It's separation, which is really what death is. Death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God himself. It all comes as a result of the hinge chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the events therein. The words of God to Adam, two important statements in this chapter. Verse 19, for you are dust and to dust you shall what? Say it out loud. That's right. That's physical death. Physical death, separation of the spirit from the body. Now, that was an immediate consequence for Adam, but he wouldn't experience it existentially until about 900 years later. But it was as good as done. He was going to die physically. Before the first sin, that wasn't the case. And then notice in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, sent him out to work the ground from which he was taken. Now that's the consequence of spiritual death. That's the separation of the soul, which is the totality of the human person. That's the separation of the soul from God. God was banishing Adam, not only from the garden, but in a very real sense, from himself. That's the problem with spiritual death. See, when you die spiritually, which is, by the way, the way that you come into the world, you are separated from God. You lose proximity to God, connection to God, fellowship with God. And for Adam, that loss of proximity, that loss of connection, that loss of fellowship happened the moment that he sinned. Death is just the worst. We fear it the most. We dread it the most. We deal with its consequences in the most gruesome kind of way, the most, and it affects everybody. 
All of us. And it started with that one decision in the garden. The Bible says it, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And this separation from God, it's so total that it is impossible for us to find our way back to God unless God helps us by guiding us back to the holiness of his presence. Ephesians 2, 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not comatose, not catatonic. You were what? Say it out loud. Dead. It's like a neuromuscular disease, like muscular dystrophy. It's not that the brain and function of the brain is emitting signals. The signals are going out, but because they're going out, They're trying to communicate with nerve endings that are completely dead and the nerve endings are not receiving the signals coming from the brain. So they don't respond. That's kind of the human dilemma. That's why Christmas is critical. Because for us to live again, we watched this A Wonderful Life last night and there's a great line that James Stewart says near the end of the movie where he's gone through it and he's decided he doesn't want his life to be over. He realizes that he's made a difference and he wants to continue to encourage and to bless people and he begins to pray and in his prayer he says these words, I want to live again. I want to live again. And for that you need God to come to you. And he did. And for a distinct purpose. The Bible says in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son. Amen. Born of a woman. Born under law to what? Say it out loud. To redeem those under the law. To redeem those who were affected by the curse of sin. That we might receive adoption as sons. That's why Jesus came. That's why Christmas is critical because Jesus came to reverse the curse. And he did it by becoming a curse for us through his suffering and through his death on the cross. If I could, I'll conclude this morning with Genesis 3.15 because this is a very important verse. God says to the serpent, see there's also, there's a judgment on the woman, there's a judgment on the man, but there's also a judgment, there's a judgment on the created order, but there's also a judgment on the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, did you know that's the first prophecy in the Bible? I mean, the first three chapters, the first four chapters really in the book of Genesis, you have one first happening after another, all kind of first things happening. And here's the first prophecy of the Bible. And it's so critically important because it it occurs out of this incredible scene of destruction and disobedience and ruin and fall and devastation. Right in the middle of all of that, you have this statement in Genesis 3.15, and it's one of the most important verses of hope that you find in the Bible because in this statement, there is the promise of restoration from ruin. There is the promise of salvation from sin, and it would come about through the birth of the Son of God. God would become a man. That's what that verse is leading us to understand. 
He would become a man, and when he came, he would deal a death blow to Satan forever. That's this idea here of offspring in the English Standard Version. The word is literally translated seed. Seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And it's interesting that the language there involves the woman. Because when you start talking about a seed that results in birth, it's kind of unusual to refer to that as coming from the woman. Because the seed doesn't come from the woman. The seed comes from whom? From the man. The sperm is the seed. That's where the seed comes from. But it says, not the man, but the woman. You know why? Because that second seed that's mentioned there ought to be in a capital S in your Bible. Because that's referring to the Son of God. That's a good place for an amen right there. Who had no earthly human father. There was no human seed that resulted from a man in Christ being born. He was born of a virgin. He was born of a young girl who had never known intimately another man. And so that's a reference to the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day in the garden... Those words would prove immortally important because Satan was dealt the biggest surprise of his life that day in the garden. Because on that day, there was set in motion the series of events that would lead to the coming of a Savior that we know today as Christ the Lord. And his mission would indeed, as the Bible says here, result in a bruised heel. That's what the Lord told the serpent. You will bruise his heel. And that's a reference to the cross. Jesus would suffer. Don't miss that. Jesus was bruised for our transgressions. Isn't that right? Broken for our iniquity. And he would be bruised with a vengeance on the cross of Calvary. Yet let me remind everybody that when Jesus died, it was only a bruising. It was not a crushing defeat. For three days later, our Lord would rise again. He was struck down, but not destroyed. He would live again. And with his resurrection and soon coming again, the serpent was also told by the Lord, you'll bruise his head, his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Now, the thing about a bruised heel is you can recover from a bruised heel. It can cripple, but it won't destroy But if you crush somebody's head, now that's a horse of a different color, isn't it? A crushed head, there is no recovery. That's irreparably fatal. And let me say this morning, this is why Christmas is critical. Christmas is critical because what we need is complete victory over sin. And what we need is total victory over our adversary who is the devil. And the only one that can defeat sin and the only one that can defeat the devil is a perfected Savior who took the iniquity of our sin on himself and by rising again gave us a victory that we could never earn by the very best of our good works. And that victory, of course, comes to us through the cross, the cross of Christ. 
prophesied for the first time in the first book of the Bible. The gospel at work even then. Many of you, like I, lived through the events of September 11th, 2001, almost 20 years ago. Seems like it was just yesterday. That's one of those seminal seminal moments that you remember where you were when it happened. And when terrorists attacked the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center, they left behind this incredible wake of ruin and, and destruction and death. And yet, do you remember one of the lasting images that came out of what was happening in the aftermath of 9-11. This photograph was seen around the world, one of the most enduring images of that terrible and tragic day, right there in the midst of ruin and rubble of disaster, seemingly rising up out of the ashes, was the greatest sign of hope that the world has ever known in the form of metal beams. You can still see that cross if you visit the memorial there at Ground Zero today. Rising from disaster was that incredible and immortal image of our Savior's cross. That's what happened in the garden. That's what happened with Gen- that's what Genesis 3:15 is. Rising from this incredible image of smoking ruins is a picture of the promise, the greatest promise of the Bible, apart from which we're left with nothing but guilt and fear and pain and certain death. We need the cross. But apart from the cross, there had to first be the manger. For the Lamb of God to be sacrificed the Savior of the world first had to be born. And that, my brothers and my sisters, in a nutshell, is why Christmas is critical. And it's what should be on your mind in all your coming and going this and every Christmas celebration. This is what God did Revealed in his eternal word, and let all who agree with it say, Amen this morning.